Well, I want to welcome you once again and thank you for joining us for part eight of the series, Dear Church. This is the last sermon in this series. And the, the, the idea behind this study has been that in a world that's flipped upside down, what we would often expect or hope for is a message from God condemning and judging the world. But that's not what we find largely in the book of Revelation. In chapters 2 and 3, where we've spent our time over these last eight weeks, Jesus pens seven letters to seven different churches. And the message is not about the world. The message is about the church. And over the last uh, three or four weeks, I've probably received more encouraging words from many of you about how much you have enjoyed, even though you're a little uncomfortable with that language of enjoyed, because the, 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 these letters are, are rather challenging to us. And I've so appreciated that, I've needed it. Because if I'm honest, the reason that I chose to do this study is I actually preached on these seven letters um, seven years ago. It was 2013 that I, I preached on these letters, and I thought, you know, this is going to be something that, that's not going to require a lot of work. I can kind of freshen up this study that I did seven years ago. And then as I got into those sermons and started doing the study each week, I, I looked at my notes, and I'm not sure how I preached on what I preached on based on the letter. It, what it looks like from my notes is I just had something that I wanted to say and it really didn't have much to do with what the letter that Jesus was writing to the church was. And so it has been uh, much more work than I had planned. It has been a, a tedious study for me and, and, and honestly uncomfortable because Jesus confronts who we are and who we are not. This week, we come to the last letter. It's written to the church at Laodicea. The letter begins in Revelation 3, verse 14. Jesus says to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear 
what the Spirit says to the churches. We've noted throughout this study the formula that the letters tend to follow, that it begins with a revelation of who Jesus is. There's a specific description that is intended for the church in their circumstance. And then Jesus will follow it up with, I know your deeds. I'm I'm close enough to know who you are and what you do. I don't just know your reputation, but I know everything about you. And some things he will commend and some he condemns. The church at Laodicea is unique in that it is one letter that Jesus has absolutely nothing positive to say about them. And it's hard to hear. It's hard to hear because this letter may be the most relevant letter to us here at the colonies in 2020. Because we have this vision of Jesus. We like Jesus. I'm just not sure that we're all committed to really following Jesus. And I'm not just pointing the finger at you, I'm including myself in that. And what this letter encourages all of us is to not mistake love for being soft. In the movie Talladega Nights, there's a a dinner scene where Uh, The main character, Ricky Bobby, he sits down with his family to say grace. And he begins the prayer by uh, praying to this dear, sweet baby Jesus. And he goes and elaborates on about how this baby Jesus is so wonderful. And his wife interrupts him in the middle of the prayer and says, Hey, you know Jesus grew up. And he very irritatedly responds, that I'm saying grace, and I, when I say grace, I prefer to say it to the sweet Christmas Jesus. Whenever you say grace, you can say it to the grown-up Jesus, the teenage Jesus, or the bearded Jesus, whoever you like. And while somewhat irre- irreverent and perhaps offensive to some, the scene does point and shine a spotlight on this troublesome tendency that we all have an image of Jesus that we love and we hold dear. And it doesn't always hold up to Scripture. As we move into the Christmas season, there are many of us that that are like Ricky Bobby. We like this sweet baby Jesus, this Jesus that is so cute and cuddly, and whenever we need him, we can pick him up and we can hold him, and then whenever we're done with him, we can put him down. And he doesn't demand anything of us. We like this Jesus that is all love, but that is not the the Jesus of Scripture. Jesus was a strong man. Just consider the, the, the time that Jesus goes into the temple. In John chapter 2, we're, we're told that, that it is after he um, makes a whip out of cords that he goes in and he, he drives everyone out of the temple complex with their sheep and oxen he also poured out the the money changers uh, coins and overturned 
the tables. And he tells those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Notice that that this was a very intentional process. Jesus sits down to make a whip. He braids a whip and then goes in. This isn't a moment where he's caught up in passion, but he very intentionally goes in to engage in this behavior. This is a strong act of judgment against people who claim to follow God. Back in 2005, Christian Smith, a sociologist, published a book in which he had conducted a lot of study about the religious culture of the United States of America. And he coined a term that is moralistic therapeutic deism. He says that's what the world has as a religion. And what moralistic therapeutic deism holds as its central tenet is that what God expects of us is just simply to be somewhat morally good and to think very well of yourself. So whenever you're down, you just go and talk to Jesus and he'll make you feel better. But is this who Jesus is? Is this what love is? Many of you, we live in a small enough town that, that you know your, your, your physician on a personal basis, not just as a doctor, but you, you know some things about them. You know their family. You may even know where they grew up if you've been around here long enough. And how would you feel if, if you went, at, went to them year after year for your yearly checkup and they told you that everything is fine, that everything's looking good, and, and then all of a sudden you have a heart attack and you go to the emergency room and they, they, they tell you that, that this has been coming on for a long time. You would go to your, your doctor and you would be furious with them. Why, why didn't you tell me? He would say, well, I, I love you and I just I didn't want to offend you. Like that, that's not love. Love is speaking the truth even whenever it hurts. And Jesus does that. He does that to the church at Laodicea. And there's, there are scripture after scripture like this from Hebrews chapter 12 that, that says that, that you have forgotten these scriptures that, that teach you, these encouraging words that call you his children. And then look at the, the combination of, Uh, of these words in verse 6. The Lord disciplines those He loves and He punishes everyone He accepts as His child. Those are not words that that we may automatically put together, but they, they are necessary to be together. Jesus says to the church at Laodicea, those whom I love, I rebuke. And his rebuke has to do with their wealth. Because their wealth has done nothing but clothe them in self-sufficiency. Now let me define self-sufficiency, the the deception of self-sufficiency there there for a, a little bit. And then I'll go on to illustrate it. The deception of self-sufficiency is this ability of our hearts to we have the ability to to know the truth 
and choose not to know the truth because the truth is too uncomfortable. Dwight Eisenhower, before he was president, was the general of the American army and its efforts in, uh, to liberate Europe and France during World War II. And as he went about that work, he, he became furious over these cities in these areas that, that they were uh, right near one of the concentration camps, and he couldn't fathom how they could allow this to exist and in, in their own community. And so tired of going in and, and bringing out all of the dead bodies and burying them with, with his own soldiers, in one, one place he decided he was going to take the citizens, he was going to take the mayor of the city into the, the, the concentration camp and make them bury the dead. And it's said that the mayor and his wife both killed themselves afterwards because they knew. They just didn't want to know. They saw all of the Jews being t- removed from their h- homes. They saw the trains running and, and heard the screams of the people. But it was too uncomfortable for them to accept what was taking place. In fact, maybe even they benefited from it. Jesus says, you say, I am rich and well off. I have all I need But you do not know how miserable you are and pitiful you are. You are poor, naked, and blind. The words of being poor, naked, and blind, those are not just words that he he pulls out of thin air. Laodicea is a wealthy area. They have grown rich through their textile industry. They were well known for the the black wool that they... they, um, that their, their farmers had in the area. They also uh, were known for their, their medicinal practices. They created this salve that, that would uh, heal many forms of blindness. Out of their wealth, they, they got into the banking industry. And so you see how that, that condemnation that you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked is directly tied to their sense of identity just to get a sense of how wealthy this area is, we've talked about a couple of these cities and how earthquakes just demolished them. Laodicea was one of those as well, but they were so wealthy that they refused the help from the government. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being so wealthy that that the government hands out money and you say, I don't need this? The truth is, you probably can, and I can. A five-mile radius from where we are right now, the average household income is approximately $87,000. In a country where the average household income in the, the country is, is around forty dollars to $45,000. We live in one of the wealthiest areas in the world, in, in, a, in a country where just by living in this country, you are automatically in the top 5% of of the wealthiest people in the world. There was a poet a number of years ago that wrote a story called The Tale of the Staircase. It told of a young man that was born in poverty and he became very indignant because of of all of the abuse that he saw all around him. 
And he came to this marble staircase, this beautiful marble staircase that, that represented the ladder of success, if you will. The only problem was that the devil controlled the access to this ladder. And he longed to climb the staircase in order to exact revenge on all of those at the top and to provide comfort to those that he lived with. The devil met him at the base of the stairs and told him that he'd allow him to go up in exchange for his eyes. The man said, I I would give my life just to be able to go up the stairs and to, to revenge all that has been done. And he gives up his eyes. Makes it up three stairs and the, the devil stops him and, and says, now, I can't let you go up anymore. He said, but I have to keep going. I have to, I have to seek out revenge. And, and he exchanges his ears and then ultimately his heart and his memory. And by the time he gets to the top, he still sees the, all the people downstairs, but their cries have changed into songs. Of, and he can't understand why they are singing and seem so jovial. And he's forgotten everything about why he even started that journey to begin with. The last lines, the devil asks him, who are you? He says that I was born into wealth and the gods are my brothers. Such a tragic parable that reveals the dangers of wealth. Wealth that that, that just kind of blinds us to the needs of people all around us. But let's be honest, it is enjoyable to take this journey. 2013, Sandra Bullock and George Clooney starred in this film that took place out in space. The title of the film was Gravity. The German newspaper, after the film was released, asked one of their astronauts to fact-check this film. And there's a scene where Sandra Bullock kind of becomes detached from the the space shuttle and kind of begins to float out into nothingness. And and the the newspaper uh, interviewer comments about how that would be such a tragic and, and horrible way to die, to just float off and know that there's nothing that can happen. The astronaut said, actually, that's not true. That actually, that what happens as you begin to run out of oxygen is the same thing that happens whenever you, you spend too much uh, time uh, too high in the mountains, that, that, that you get, get depleted of oxygen. It's the same thing that happens whenever you go to the dentist and they, they give you nitrous oxide, that, that things actually become funny to you. That someone tells bad jokes and it just, it just gets even funnier and funnier. He says that actually the one that dies alone in, spot, in space dies a cheerful death. When I read that, I couldn't help but wonder how many of the churches of Jesus Christ die a cheerful death. Because they aren't aware of how wealth is deceiving them. There was a minister that was interviewed reflecting on our current election. 
He said that we, we love in Churches of Christ to, to claim to be first century Christians. That we want to restore the, the, the faith and the life of the first century church. And he said that reflecting on the way that we behave in our elections, that, that we argue over health care, but they built hospitals. We argue over abortion, but they picked up children that were abandoned to die out in the wilderness. We argue about tax rates and private property, but they held everything in common. You see, that is what it means to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord of everything. That you are not a Christian just because of the way that you vote. Don't Deceive yourselves. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 18, Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. We claim that we are better than others, Scripture tells us. We claim that we, we, we know the truth. We claim that we are without sin. And the only ones we're fooling is ourselves. We're not living the truth. So James will say, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. So how do you know if the wealth that we have is, is clothing us in self-deception? One indication may be is there a sense of prayerlessness? Or is your devotional life just, just blah? Is it just there? Now prayerlessness and, and, and a, a, an inactive or, or uh, a, a devotional time that, that seems to, to lack uh, vigor, that, that is sometimes just a, a natural course of life. But it also may be a symptom that we have reached a status where we no longer need Jesus. That we don't need Jesus to do things because we have enough money, we can pay for people to do it for us. We don't need Jesus to heal us because we have health insurance and we, we have money, we have a savings account and we can go and we can have a physician tell us what to do. Wealth is deceptive. And self-sufficiency, the problem with it is it leaves no vacancy for Jesus. Jesus says to the church at Laodicea that, that they are like lukewarm water. While they were a very wealthy area, the one thing that they lacked as a city was a natural source of water. They had to pipe in their water through an elaborate aqueduct six miles. Now you can imagine how that water changes temperature over that six miles. They weren't very far from an, a region that, that had some hot springs and people would go there in the same way that you may to, to go and sit in the hot springs bath. It, it has these kind of uh, regenerative properties to it. 
They weren't very far away from the, the mountains where, where there was a spring that, that, that just bubbled up with this fresh, cold water and, and it breathed new life into you. But by the time the water reached them, it was lukewarm. And we've often struggled with what to make, how, how to make sense of Jesus saying, we understand Jesus saying, I, I would rather you be hot, but why would Jesus say, I would rather you be cold? can't imagine Jesus saying that, that, that he would want us to, to, for our faith to be cold. But what Jesus is actually saying is that, that hot water and cold water, they are useful. Some of you wake up and the first thing you do is, is you turn on the coffee pot because you want that, that, that hot black coffee to bring life to you. Right? You're not alive until you have that, that hot coffee. Others are, are like me, and you can't stand the hot stuff, but, but man, the, the cold stuff, you, you love that. It, it's good, but, but nobody, nobody just wants something that's just been setting out. It's just lukewarm. It's nauseating, Jesus says. And this is the problem with Laodicea. The perfect picture is provided for us in the, the life of the first king, of the nation of Israel. Saul, whenever he was identified as the king, he, he felt so inadequate, he hid among the, luggage, in the, among the luggage whenever he was being announced. But after a few years, it changed. Samuel goes out to visit Saul out on the battlefield after God has just delivered a tremendous victory to them and we're told that what Saul is doing, as Samuel comes, he can't find him, and Saul has gone out and he's built a monument in his own honor. You see the, the dramatic turn. When he didn't have any power, when he had no control, he, he needed God, but now that he has it, he begins to worship God. Himself. And so Jesus would say things like, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve, in this case, Jesus says, God and money. To the church at Laodicea, Jesus provides this beautiful picture. In verse 20, Jesus is standing at the door and knocking. This perhaps is one of the most misused verses in all of Scripture. We've long used this as, a, as an invitation to those who are lost, those who are away from God, that, that He is knocking on the door. But this is not a message for the world, church. This is a message for us. Maybe you didn't know, but it's possible to, to have a church and not allow Jesus inside the doors of the church. But this is what is taking place. And Jesus outside the doors and he's knocking. There was a, a painting, a famous painting from a number of years ago that, that depicted this scene. The door is overgrown with a garden that is nearby. And it, it's obvious that the door hasn't been opened in some time. What is missing from this picture is... There is no doorknob on the outside. 
It was 50 years after William Holman Hunt painted this picture that he revealed why he, he included or didn't include a door handle. That it comes from this passage in Revelation 3, verse 20, that, that Jesus, he doesn't force his way in, that we have to open the door and let him in. So I stand here some 2,000 years after Jesus wrote this message to the church at Laodicea to a church that perhaps is even wealthier than the church that was gathered there. And I ask you as the church, have you opened the door to let Jesus in? If not, it's time to repent. It's time to let Jesus in. We're going to sing a song of invitation. And for the church, the repenting looks like uh, things like going to someone and confessing your sins. Maybe you have offended someone and you know it and you need to go to them now. Maybe you don't even need to stay for the rest of the service. You just need to go and make amends and then come back and worship. Or maybe you need to go to one of our shepherds and and ask for prayers. Have them pray over you. And while this, this message of this door that is being knocked on by Jesus is not primarily evangelistic, we cannot let the moment pass without acknowledging that Jesus wants to sit at the table and eat and drink with everyone. And if you haven't taken that first step yet, For you to open the door is not just simply to open the door of your heart, but but it is to, to encounter Jesus and commit to living His life. We do that, according to Romans chapter 6, we do that through what we call baptism. We encounter Jesus who died and was buried and was raised again. We encounter him through the waters of baptism. That's where we encounter the the, the blood and we raise to live a new life. And so if you're here and you need that forgiveness, you need to, to walk a new life, we offer the invitation to you this morning to come, to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's stand and sing together.